several years back now, when I was youth pastor, various churches, we would go to an event called Student Life Conference. And Student Life Conferences, in fact, many of you have been to those with me or uh, with groups. And Student Life Conferences would travel throughout the United States. And it was just a great time of worship, a time of just preaching. And typically they picked out a, a, a speaker who was well-known, one who was very effective at communicating scripture. And there was one guy that uh, spoke probably 15 years ago now. And, uh, you know, he, he was just like really cool older guy. And I say older guy because he's probably about my age now, right? And I, I thought at 35, I thought he was older. Um, but he, he, he was a cool guy. He, he pastored a huge mega church. He uh, was a chaplain for a Division I football team, just a very, very good, effective preacher, and the students really responded to him in a, in a great way, and he said something, and this has been 15 years ago, and it stuck with me all these years. In fact, it's kind of my go-to definition for faith. It's faith is believing something so much that you trust it, and I've used that before. Faith is believing something so much that you trust it. And so if you just think about that practically, because we talk about faith and what faith is, what faith isn't, but if you think about that practically, you, you look at, at what it is you're beginning to think about, should I put my faith in this? We do it all the time without realizing it. And then we make a decision based upon uh, the worthiness that we deem of that, that thing or the, the experience we've had with that thing. And so like this chair right here, if I felt confident I could stand up on this chair would it hold my weight, okay? And I sit in these chairs every week. Uh, they have never collapsed on me yet. And so I, I will, with confidence, stand on this chair and feel no worries that it would collapse with my weight or I would injure myself. I have faith in this, uh, this chair. I prove that by trusting myself to it. Now, obviously, certain things require more faith than other things. Um, uh, Lance and, and Kirk are going to help me with this one. You've seen this before, and, you, and uh, I'm going to do a little trust fall right here uh, for the kids, family worship day. They've probably done this themselves. And so I asked Kirk and Lance, uh, I'm just going to let you guys hold hands for a while there. That looks nice. Um, I, 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 I asked these guys to do this because I trust both of these guys immensely. Um, they are strong. Uh, they're capable of holding my weight. And, and so I deem them worthy to, for me just to turn around here and trust them and just completely fall backwards and knowing after I look and make sure I'm in the right place, uh, knowing that they'll catch me without a problem. So I'm going to fall, and that was really easy. And thanks, guys. Give them a hand. Uh, I, I trusted them. I, I, I did that, all right? Uh, I called my friend Brennan Webb this morning, and Brennan is a guy who is, man, this guy has so many skills. It's incredible. He's a guy you go to if you want to learn to tie a knot or get a hitch put on your truck or whatever it is, and I've been to the shooting range with this guy. He, he, he knows a lot about guns. He knows a lot about everything. And so, uh, Brennan, if you could come on out, and Brennan's going to help me with something. All right, he's got a, a trusty little uh, BB gun uh, there, and, and so he's going to line it up here. I'm going to put this in my mouth, and he's going to fire the BB and take out this without injuring me whatsoever, right? Back up a little. All right, I can do that. All right, so... I'm going to put this in my mouth. He's going to take aim. And you know what? I, I, I'm looking at my wife and my family there, and I'm thinking, you know what? My wife really needs a husband. <laughs> Harrison's still young. He needs a dad around, all right? And, 
And so as much as I do love and trust Brennan, I'm sure that he could take a pretty good shot. But you know what? I, I don't have a lot of confidence, one, in that gun that he has that doesn't look like he's really worthy. And secondly, I, you know, just aim being off a few inches, and he could hit me in the temple, and even a BB could, like, take me out, all right? So I'm going to say no on that one, that it's not going to happen, all right? Maybe in a few years, but not today, okay? All right, thank you, Brennan. Um, and so I, I looked at the situation. I valued the situation. I could say I believe that he could do it. I could say that every day for the next 100 years, I believe Brendan could do that, but until I actually let him pull the trigger and take the shot, I really exhibited no faith in that situation. Because remember, faith is believing something so much that I trust it to happen. Yet we can compartmentalize Jesus and say we believe in Jesus, but really not trust our lives to him whatsoever. Ali said a great job, really did a great job explaining that in the testimony. And it's true that the more that we get to know Jesus, and if you don't know Christ uh, today, that statement, that expression, you're like, I don't get that either. That doesn't make sense. But as you grow more and more with Christ, it's easy to look back and say, maybe I didn't know him back then because I'm so in love with him today that it seems like I didn't know him. And I I experienced that too, Allie, um, uh, that I look back even five years, ten years, and say, wow, you know, I feel like I didn't even know Christ then because I know him so much better. And I feel that way about my wife as well. You know, you think you're in love at the beginning, but then at, at 20 years of marriage, 25 years of marriage, you look back and like, that was not love. Like, this is love, and then I hope I'll say that another 25 years from now. And, and so love does grow, but yet people can easily make a profession about Jesus, but then have nothing whatsoever to back it up. They just live their lives the way they want, but I believe in Jesus, I'm saved. And when I'll hit church, if nothing else more important happens, I will read my Bible if, you know, I really have to or I feel compelled or guilted into it or, you know, for some reason, you know, that I, I, you know, I have to prepare for something. But otherwise, I'm not really investing in my spiritual life whatsoever. That, that's really a problem. And, you know, what's really interesting and it's so real to life, and this is not a judgment on the guy, but, you know, the student life speaker that I told you about at the beginning, he had been having an affair for 25 years while he preached the word, went to these conferences, pastored a megachurch, and all along he had this secret life that he had going on, yet he continued to do the things of God. You know what that tells me? You can be great at sharing scripture. You can even know the Bible. You can lead people. You can say quotes that somebody remembers 15 years later but still have serious issues at the heart of your relationship with Christ. Serious issues. And praise God, he was exposed, he's repented, and uh, hopefully he's doing fine now. Uh, His marriage was restored, but it just shows you the depths of our own deception, doesn't it? And Jesus is dealing with people who are equally as deceived, if not more deceived. The people that we've looked at over the last few weeks, the groups who have come to try to bring down, to expose Jesus for, they thought, not being the true Messiah, being a fake, being a sham. They're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him off the scene. And many of these people, just like this pastor, these, these guys were spiritual leaders of their day. They knew 
the scriptures, better than we do know the scriptures. They could quote the scriptures. They lived pious lives oftentimes. Yet, they didn't know God. And they didn't recognize God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so today, Jesus is going to focus upon the resurrection. And I'd just like to give you one verse that kind of ties this all together before we jump into the passage. Romans 10, 9. Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth the Lord, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see what he does? He says everything focuses in on the resurrection of Jesus. You believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, that God raised him up. He says, you'll be saved. There's no tricks. There's no, there's no fake here. You know, it's, it's, it's do you believe historically that Jesus rose from the dead? He says that's really the, the root, that's really the foundation of, of faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus, everything else falls into place. If Jesus rose from the grave, then he's the son of God, and if he was the son of God, we believe he could live a sinless life, and we know that he could easily have been raised from the dead, even though the crucifixion was horrible and terrible. So do you believe that? Do you believe that in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, and then he says at the beginning, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that's not about just reciting something and saying, okay, I made a verbal profession. That means that what has happened, the faith that's in your heart, comes out in your life. It comes out in who you are, the fruit of your life, so to speak. And during the Bible times, if someone put their faith in Christ and confessed Jesus Christ, they risked giving up everything, even possibly their life. So confessing Jesus meant Jesus I'm, you're the Lord of my life because I put my faith in you. I believe that you are who you said you are. I put my trust in who you said you are. Then my life now will reflect that because you're amazing. You rose from the dead. You proved yourself to be who you, are, who you said you are. And as a result of that, you're the leader of my life. I'm going to fall in line with you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to live for you. I confess you with my mouth. And so as we get into this passage today, and as we think about these fake God followers, really a question for us is, are we truly following God? Do we truly know Jesus? Are we trusting the historical fact of the resurrection? And then as a result of that, the faith that God puts in our hearts, are we following him in obedience and letting him be the leader of our lives? So we're in Mark chapter 12, and we're in verse 18 through 27. Talking about these guys called the Sadducees today. And they were sadly mistaken, Sadducees. Verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offsprings. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For, she ha- for the seven had her as wife. Remember, they're trying to trap Jesus. We'll explain this in a second. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you neither, you, I'm sorry, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These are guys who knew the scriptures 
intellectually, but he says, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when they raise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you that your truth becomes so evident as your Holy Spirit br- brings this word to life. God, this, this word is so powerful. And God, it, it's so beyond uh, our understanding in ourselves, left to ourselves. We need your spirit to guide us and make the truth real and bring our hearts to life. God, I pray for those in here that have been playing a game that they maybe acknowledge you or say they believe in you, but really, truthfully, there's real no, no real faith, no real belief in you. They're not trusting their lives into your hands. And God, I pray that you'll humble them today and help them to cry out for, for mercy and grace from you, which you will gladly, eagerly give to them. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been tracking through Mark for a long time, and we're in the Passion Week. Passion Week, all right? So we're leading up to the cross in just a few days based on the chronological order order of this passage of this book we're just a few days away so let me kind of recap where we've been Uh, on Sunday Jesus came into Jerusalem with all the fanfare of a king he came in he rode on a donkey the people lined the streets and they said Hosanna praise to God here comes our Messiah here comes our king And so Jesus allows that to happen. Always before in the book, we've seen over and over again, Jesus said, you know, keep this, you know, on the down low. I don't want a lot of people to know that I'm the Messiah at this point. He's waiting for the right time. Well, the right time is very near. And so he allows the people to give him this reception into Jerusalem. He's come to Jerusalem. So he walks in after the fanfare. He walks into the temple, the center of worship, the identity for the Jewish people. He walks into the temple. He looks around. He leaves and heads back to Bethany. So the next day, several events happen. We talked about that he comes back to the temple on Monday, and he does what we refer to as he cleanses the temple. He goes in to the courts of the Gentiles, and he, there's people exchanging money. There's people selling items for the sacrifices, and Jesus just goes in, and he just wipes it clean. He just starts dumping over tables. He runs people out. He blocks people from going to worship. I mean, this is a Jesus we really had not seen up to this point. This is a Jesus who is offended by the behavior of the people who claim to know God, yet they were blocking people who did not know God from coming to God and worshiping God. That was kind of the the bottom line. And then we moved to Tuesday, and, and Tuesday has been a very busy day. Last week's, week's text happened in, on, on Tuesday. We're still on Tuesday. And Tuesday... We got these groups coming to Jesus, trying to trick him. There's three different traps they're trying to set on Jesus to get him tripped up. For what purpose? So the Romans will arrest him or the people will turn on him. And so they're trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they can get him off the scene. They can get him out of the picture. And so in this passage, a group called the Sadducees now come and they bring Jesus a theological question. Last week, you remember, it was more of a political question. This week, it's a theological question. Verse 18, the Sadducees came come to him. And so this is a, a, a bunch of guys, a bunch of people during his time who were urban, wealthy, very educated Jews. They, Even though they were a smaller group, 
they had in incredible influence in many positions in the, the country of Israel, in the priesthood. These guys were really, really movers and shakers of their day, well, wealthy people who could make it happen. Now, interesting about the Sadducees, they, unlike the Pharisees, only believed that the first five books of the, the, the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those were the only inspired uh, word of God. That's the only books that God actually gave and spoke and gave revelation, called the Torah. And, and so this is the only thing that they look to as the final authority, whereas the Pharisees, you remember, they trusted the whole Old Testament plus a lot of oral traditions that had been added, added to it, and so they added much to it. But the Sadducees weren't like that. And as the verse tells, they denied the resurrection. They did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe the dead would rise again. So you live, you die, you're gone. And they also, they really denied God's involvement into daily life. They were what we would call like kind of like deist, that God got this thing moving and going, but really he didn't have much involvement in the day-to-day -day life of people. They also denied the afterlife, denying the resurrection. Obviously, they would deny there was an afterlife that happened, and so there was no penalty or reward for this life. It just ended, and then they denied the spiritual world altogether. There was no demons, no angels. It was just like there was nothing but materialism. It was, it, they were very, very much like a lot of people today. All right, so it's over when it's over, and there's nothing out there. There's not a spiritual world. There's not a supernatural. So despite their very deep differences with the Pharisees, they were eager, just like the Herodians we saw, eager to join forces for the one purpose of bringing Jesus down to trip him up. And so the issue at stake, when you heard this passage being read, if you've not heard this before, you might be scratching your head like, what is this all about, all right? Um, this is called leveret marriage in the Old Testament, this idea that he explains in verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and he leaves a wife but no children, the man must take the widow, the, the man's brother must take the widow and raise her and, and raise the child as his own. So he, he marries his dead brothers. If he's a single guy, if he's not married, and his brother who's married and his brother has no children, his brother dies, then Leviticus tells him that he needs to marry the brother's wife, the brother's widow, so that the offspring, the firstborn offspring, would then carry on the legacy, the, the, be an heir to the brother. So he would carry his brother's name, and that name could carry on. And so while it seems weird to us and crazy to us, it had an important purpose during the ancient times. Uh, having an heir for inheritance, to pass on within your tribe, your name, that was super vital and very, very important during that time. And then also, just practically, this woman would need someone to take care of her as a widow. Uh, left to herself, she would be destitute and, and have to turn to pr probably begging as a result. And so this was put in as protection to guarantee her a new family and financial resources. And so you may remember, if you know your Bible, the story of Bo. Uh, I'm sorry, Boaz and Ruth, you may remember that story. That's a, a situation of this type of marriage. And so, remember, the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection, okay? So, they're going to Jesus, and they're trying to point out how silly this idea of the resurrection is with an even sillier story, a hypothetical story they make up. Verse 20 through 22, he says, There were seven brothers. The first one took the wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her. Left no offspring. The third, likewise, you get through all seven, you get the idea. 
and at last the woman herself, she dies. And so we see that they're framing up this trick question, they think, and they're assuming that this man was going to be the husband of one of these, uh, of this wife. One of these guys had to be her husband in the next life. If they believed in the next life, they don't believe in the next life. They're trying to trick Jesus up. So here's the trick question. Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For she had seven who were her husband. So each of her seven marriages ended in the depth, death of the husband and produced no child. All right? So very unlikely story, obviously. And if it was a true story, you sure wouldn't want to be married to that woman. She did not have a very good track record. By the time you got the fourth brother, he's like, uh, no thanks. I'll find another option here. But the Sadducees, they didn't really want to know an answer to this. They, they weren't looking for truth. They were trying to trip Jesus up and show there's just this lack of logic to the resurrection. And ultimately, they were trying to stir up the people, stir up things, cause a debate, get Rome's attention. Rome would come in and arrest Jesus. And so a couple things important to understand in their question here. Jesus had to take it seriously. Why? Why did Jesus have to take this silly hypothetical story seriously? Because two things. Jesus had predicted his own resurrection to the disciples. We've seen it several times. Jesus just point blank told his disciples, hey guys, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be put to death, and after three days I'm going to rise again. He predicted, he prophesied his own death and his own resurrection several times. So he couldn't just leave this hanging. So he was going to rise again just in a few short days. So he needed to set this clear. And then secondly, the resurrection is at the center of what becoming a Christian means. It's, it's, at, it's at the center of our hope. It's, it's what our Christian hope is all about. And so if there's no resurrection from the dead, Paul writes, we're to be more pitied than anyone because you know, we, we got, we're doing all this for nothing. It's just going to end. And so he has to take this seriously. So verse 24, look what he does. He says, he says to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? And interesting, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, you got to study, but you don't know the scriptures. Ouch. I mean, I'm sure that hurt because they claim to know the Torah. They claim to know it. I mean, they probably had it memorized. They could probably start in Genesis 1-1 and quote all the way through the Torah. They knew it that well. But Jesus says, you don't know it, and you don't know the power of God. And this is a critical error that they were making because they didn't understand God's word. That means they didn't understand God. All right? Let me say that again. If you don't understand God's word correctly, you don't understand who God is. Misinterpreting the scriptures always leads to a distorted view of God. Misinterpreting scripture always leads to a God who's way too small, or it's somebody who's not God at all. You know, every cult, every, every branch of stuff that's broken off took a little bit of truth, a, a verse here or there, a passage here and there, and they grabbed it and they ran with it, All, every one of them. They, every, every group took something from Scripture. And so, as some people say, you know, a, a, a broken clock is they're right twice a day, right? It's, it's twice a day. You look at these cults, these different groups, and you say, maybe they're closer to us than what I thought because they're right on that, and they're right on that. And so it's important that we understand Scripture because if we don't understand Scripture correctly, if we don't study Scripture, if we don't listen to sound preaching of Scripture, 
then we have the wrong view of God. And that's critical. And that's exactly what the Sadducees had done here. I mean, let me just give you, I, I gave some examples. I actually put it in the app. I, don't, I didn't have time for it in my sermon today. But if you're following along in our app, and the app's a great thing to use. All the sermon notes are there. I put a little link there for some examples. You can look at that later. Don't get too distracted by that now. But for so many people, uh, the meaning of a passage of Scripture, even in good Bible-teaching churches, is in the eye of the beholder. It's like, I feel this is saying this, so therefore that's what it means. And so many people are guilty of doing that. They think that truth is individualized for them. They just spiritualize or allegorize a passage of Scripture, find some hidden meaning in it, and they just run with that as truth and miss what God is trying to show them and the timeless truths, the timeless principles that exist. And so one that's particularly bad in churches is this idea of allegorizing Scripture. And what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example, and that's the best way to, to, to explain it to you. And while sometimes when people allegorize, what they get is true, but it's not anything about what the passage is about, and you start down a dangerous road when you begin to take things and turn them into things that they're not meant to be. Because Scripture is to be studied and, and, and interpreted in a historical context of the way it was written. The genre which it was written in, there's, there's a timeless there's historical truth and timeless principles that come out of that. And so to just to grab things that feel right to you is a dangerous way to go. Mark chapter 5, we looked at that many weeks ago. The maniac, the, the, demon, the, the, the demonic possessed guy from this place called Gadara. Do you remember him, the guy who was living in the tombs? And that uh, he would yell out and scream out and cut himself. Do you remember that passage of scripture? Well, uh, this is a trusted Bible teacher who wrote this. She wrote, he didn't live in a house he resided in the tombs. I wonder how many people today are living in the tombs. I know a woman who is so oppressed by despair that decades after the loss of a loved one, she still lives in the tombs. All right? Living in the tombs, this guy living in the tombs, has nothing to do with the interpretation of this passage of Scripture. This text is about Jesus' authority over the demonic realm, not about people living in the tombs. So you see how that goes? You can just pick up anything you want and make it mean something else. Well, well, well there's application to that, that idea that some people do live in despair. It, it's what we, as preachers, say, uh, good thought, wrong text, right? I mean, it just doesn't fit there. It's not what the text is about. That's an example that you have to be aware of because you can take Scripture, turn the meaning, make it personalized like, you know, um, there's one guy who wrote a book, and it was really popular right after 9-11, and basically he turned every symbol in the Old Testament into something to do with 9-11. In fact, every tree or every situation there in, at, at the World Trade Centers, and he made lots of money off this book by what's called allegorizing, taking these symbols and these stories in the Old Testament, flipping them around and making them mean something to 9-11, and then making predictions. My warning to you is, is be leery of that kind of approach to Scripture. Because ultimately, you turn yourself into the authority for interpreting, and you can take whatever thing you want to make. If I want to make tombs mean depression, I can turn tombs into depression, and you miss the whole point of the passage of Scripture. So ultimately, you risk putting yourself in danger because you twist the very nature and character of God if we're not extremely careful. And your God will be powerless because he's not the true God. He's not the God as revealed in his word. And so, while the Bible is generally very plain in its meaning, 
proper interpretation does require some effort, it requires some study, and I've said over and over again, I've encouraged you to get a study Bible, a good study Bible, and I put some, some examples of study Bibles on the screen that I own that are really, really good. This is one of those, and I encourage you to get that because not only does each book start out with a section that explains the historical context, what's going on in the world, what the purpose of this book being written is, so you begin to understand why it's there, what, why it's in here, why Paul or Peter or John or somebody, why they wrote what they wrote. And then also, there's notes to help you understand some things that may be difficult that many, many people who, are, who understand and study the Bible, who are, who are great believers and, and have a great track record of following Jesus, they write these notes in here to help you understand the passage. Now, while these are not inspired like the Scripture, um, when you have the church speaking together, people coming together to help provide some insight, it's very trustworthy if you get a good study Bible. Who doesn't own a study Bible, by the way? Does anybody not own a study Bible? Anybody not own a study Bible? Uh, Regina, right here, all right? I saw your hand first. All right, here you go. You have a study Bible now. All right, so some great examples of study Bibles there. I hope you'll pick up a study Bible and begin to use it because it's important that we understand Scripture, but we understand it not just to grow in our intellectual knowledge, not just to be more theologically insightful, not so we can talk the talk. That's not why we study the Bible. The purpose of studying the Bible is not to just increase our knowledge, just to increase our knowledge about God, to know God more and more. We want to know the God of the Bible. We want to know, as Paul said, I want to know Jesus. I want to have a relationship with Jesus. And as we do that, God's word and God himself ultimately begins to transform us and change us. And so his word changes us. It changes our hearts. It changes what we want and desire. It helps us, as Ali said, it, it helps us see, you know, there's so much more than just living for myself. It's living for Jesus. And so we read it, we study it, we memorize it, we think about it, and we apply it in order to know Jesus better. Is that why you read your Bible? Is that why you study your Bible? So you can know Jesus better? The religious leaders of Israel were committed to the scriptures. They read it constantly. They heard it preached in the synagogues, but they didn't really know it, Jesus says. They didn't know the power of God behind it, the power that was able to change their lives and make them see who Jesus was and to put their faith in Jesus. Contrast that with what Paul writes in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 to the church at Thessalonica. He says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, not by what we're saying, but as it really was the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You see what he says? He says God's word transforms us. It leads us to Jesus, to know Jesus, and then it transforms our life. It changes us. And so it's so much more than just theological knowledge. It's, it's an intimacy, just like you get to know your spouse over time. You get to know Jesus over time, that he becomes real to you. You, you talk to him. If you see a Christian throughout the day walking or riding in his car and mumbling, I mean, he could be on his Bluetooth uh, his phone, but maybe he's talking to Jesus, and that, that puzzles you. Like, I don't get that. Why would you just talk to Jesus throughout the day? Because we're getting our marching orders from Jesus. Jesus, how do you want me to live this day? What do you want me to do in that relationship with that guy that I've been talking to about you? 
How should I respond to that situation? What about that, that person at church who, like, I, you know, I, I really feel like that, that they don't like me. And, 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 like, they never speak to me. And they won't make eye contact with me. How should I deal with that, Jesus? What about the situation I'm dealing with with my spouse where I see myself being really, really selfish. But I feel like she's wrong also. What should I do? And God takes his word and uses his word to transform and change us. So Jesus says, the Sadducees, they don't know scripture. As much as they study it, they don't know it because they don't know the power of God that brings change into lives, that makes a difference in our lives. It was just information for them. So verse 25, Jesus gives them the truth. He says, for when they raise from the dead, this hypothetical situation, he says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So he says, you know what, in this situation, there's no marriage, that's no dilemma, it's no problem. But he says, the truth is, nobody will be getting married or be married in heaven. It's kind of sad, right? If you love your spouse, you're like, well, it's kind of disappointing that I won't be married to them in heaven. The only thing I can do is find solace in the fact that heaven's going to be amazing, that being with God is forever is so, so, so amazing that we will hopefully know our spouses, and, and, but it won't be the same. It won't be like it is on earth. Uh, why did God create marriage in the first place? For pre- procreation was one of the big reasons, to repopulate, be fruitful, and multiply. No need for that in heaven. Uh, we don't need to reproduce it on the new earth. We won't need to reproduce it, reproduce population. And so he says, that's not needed in heaven. Relationships will be different in heaven. They operate on a different plane in heaven. So Jesus tells them the afterlife is not like this life, that there's no marriage in the era, in the kingdom to come. But he says, you'll be like the angels in heaven. Now, let's be careful here because a lot of people run with this. We'll be like angels. Have you ever heard people say that? Like somebody dies and you're trying to console them. Oh, she got her wings today. Don't say that, all right? She, she didn't get her wings today, all right? That, that's not the, what's going on here. Oh, she's back with being an angel again with God. And we're saying these things probably for the good motive. We're, we're trying to console and make them feel better. But God doesn't need another angel. Uh, that's not his purpose for taking somebody to him. This, this idea of but they were like the angels in heaven is only applying to the marriage, the illustration of marriage. They're like the, the angels who don't marry. They're not given in marriage. Angels don't marry people. And so I think another thing that's really interesting, as we walk through the book of Mark, we've seen that uh, the parallel accounts in the other Gospels oftentimes will be slightly different, no contradictions, but slightly different, meaning that there could be a, a story or a parable or even an expression in one of those other books that may not be in Mark. And so in Luke, it's interesting in this account that Luke uh, has something else that Jesus says here uh, in this passage. In verse 34 of chapter 20, he says, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So the little phrase that Luke adds is, those who are considered worthy to obtain to that age and to the resurrection. You know what? That means that means some people won't be worthy to be resurrected, to be with God after death. After this life, some will not be deemed worthy. And Jesus is not speaking here about the resurrection of the wicked. He's only zooming in here on the resurrection of the righteous in this case. And he says, some of you just won't be resurrected to be with God after this life. 
because you're not worthy. What does he mean by that? Well, we know a couple of things. One, we know the wicked will be resurrected. Acts, when Paul's making his defense before Felix, he says uh, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So we know that both uh, will happen. But how do we become worthy to be resurrected, to be in God's presence, to be absent with the body, is to be present with the Lord? How does that happen? I want to read one verse for you here, 1 Peter 3, 1 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be, what's the phrase next? Born, what? Born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're born again through our living hope, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. We go back to where we started. Faith, believing in the historical truth that Jesus rose from the dead. You're born again. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. There's no trick again. There's no like, am I or am I not? Is your hope and faith in a resurrected Jesus? And are you giving your life to Jesus as a result of believing that truth? Are, is your life in his hands? Are you dead to yourself but alive to God because God put that faith in your heart when you believed and that changed everything? Because if a guy could raise from the dead, he can be the son of God for sure, right? I believe that. And he lived a sinless life, took my place on the cross, took the punishment that I deserved and gave me the righteousness that God needed in order to have a relationship with me. I got that. The great exchange. Christ got my sinfulness. I got his righteousness. It's all about the resurrection. It's all about Jesus. Everything else falls in place. So Jesus tells him in verse 24, back in 24, you're wrong. You don't understand the scriptures. Talked to a guy this last week who believes in reincarnation. He believes that, you know, I'm going to die, come back as a grasshopper or something. You know, I'm, I'm going to, I got another shot at this thing. Jesus says, you know what? There's a resurrection, and you're not going to be worthy of it to be with God because, one, you don't believe in the resurrection, and you're not going to believe in my resurrection in a few days because you don't believe in a resurrection. And he says, you just don't know scripture. And what's interesting in verse 26, he points them back to the very books of the Bible they believe in. He takes them back to Moses. He takes them back to the Torah. And he uses an example of when God came to Moses in the burning bush. And he said, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. These guys were all dead. Abraham, dead. Isaac, dead. Jacob, dead. So what's the point, Jesus? He says, God is still the God to these great people patriarchs of Israel long after their death he's still their God and he's speaking in a active current way of expression so what he's saying is these guys are alive or they're present with God some somehow he said they're, they're still there God's still their God they're still trusting him as God even though they died a long time ago so Jesus takes the books they believe in the truth they believe and he says look this just shows you there is a resurrection. These guys that, that you believe and put all your, you know, all your religious value into, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're alive with God even right now. So scripture does teach the resurrection 
And although they hold uh, the scriptures as authoritative, they don't believe this to be true. And they misunderstood the afterlife. It's not like the life now. They had in, an incorrect idea of marriage. They had an incorrect understanding of what would happen in their hypothetical situation. There's no marriage in the afterlife. So look what he says in verse 27. He says, you're quite wrong, right? You're quite wrong. You don't say that, do you? You don't tell people they're wrong, right? You're right. I'm right. We're all right. We'll just be happy and all right together, right? Don't, don't tell people. Don't push your convictions and your beliefs on somebody else. Jesus, how, how dare you do that? All right, live and let live. Let them believe what they believe and you believe what you believe. And let's just be tolerant of one another, right? That's what we're taught and trained to believe. Jesus says, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. There's truth. There's right and wrong. There's either a resurrection or there's not a resurrection. And so it matters. Jesus says, there is a resurrection. And Jesus says, I'm going to raise again. So it's not what the Sadducees, they would fit in well. Even though we look at these ancient guys and we're like, you know, these old guys that, that lived a long time ago, they, they believed in weird stuff, the spirit world and, you know, demons and all this stuff. They were just so out of touch with reality and the scientific mind of today. Well, here we have modern men back 2,000 years ago, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in any of the spiritual life. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They just believed, I am, I am here, I'm physical, I'm material, and when I die, it's all over, so why not, you know, you only live once, right? And so get the most out of it, enjoy, take advantage make as much money as possible, be wealthy, uh, have a good life, because at the end of it, you're gone anyway, and it doesn't matter, right? That's pretty much the belief of most of the world today, in the United States uh, anyway, and, and the European world, is if you reject Christ in the resurrection, you really, in, in my mind, you only have one other option, right? What's that other option is, I just happened here by chance out of some explosion or some weird billions of years circumstances that took place to get me to where I'm at today and I'm walking upright I'm a human being who's thinking and that just all happened by accident right it, it just all was a series of things that happened and we can't you know we just it doesn't matter what happens next because we're going to die and we're going to go back to dirt and we're gone forever and it's that's it so why not why not live however we want to live that's your options, right? I mean, ultimately, that's your options. Jesus says it's the resurrection, the supernatural is true, this is real, it matters, you only get one shot at it, there's not a do-over, another do-over, and you get another chance of reincarnation, and maybe you'll get it right one day as a cow, okay, or a horse. But you, you, that's not going to happen. It ends at the end of this life, and to be absent of the body, as I said, is to be present with the Lord. You'll stand before God and give an account, and... He'll say, are you worthy? You know what we should answer? I'm not. I'm not worthy, God. But I put my trust and belief in someone who is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was given on my behalf. God, the only reason I can stand before you humbly and fall at, my, at your feet is because of Jesus Christ. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant enter into my courts, enter into my praise, enter into worship of me for eternity. You say, it's, it's hard to believe. Is it hard to believe that you popped into existence through some explosion out of nothing that you came into being? Because that's your other option, right? I mean, that's really your only other option. Either the supernatural world or it's just all material 
which came from nothing, which is immaterial in my mind, right? I, maybe I'm wrong on that, but it seems immaterial that nothing is nothing, right? So you have a choice. Faith is required. I'm going to believe in something so much that I trust my life to it. You can trust that you're just here by accident, that you just are a random mutation. You can put your faith in that. You can trust that. Or you can trust Jesus Christ, who rose again from the dead. Hundreds of people saw him. Many touched him and interacted with him. We have written historical accounts of that today. I think I'm putting my faith in that. There is a resurrection. We will give an account. What we do with Jesus matters. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us life and hope and meaning and purpose. And when we are honest, as we lay our head on our pillow at night, thinking about our lives, what they've been, what we hope they'll be, God, I pray at those moments that your spirit will remind us, unbeliever and believer alike, that there's more. There's more to this existence than just getting what we can get, finding joy in trivial, meaningless things that ultimately prove themselves to be.